speak. Uh, all 12 will be covered in uh, Danny's uh, life group notes and you can look at them uh, by yourself or in your life group. And of course, if there are people who would like to join a life group, Leanne's the one to talk to, right? That'd be great. Okay, so first of all, here's a little spoiler alert as we're going to start thinking about the kingdom of heaven. Living in the kingdom of heaven flips just about every notion we have of what the good life is really like. So get ready for some challenges to our conventional wisdom over the coming weeks. Right, let's just pray again. Father God, give us ears to hear as we open your word. Help us to be ready to put aside old thinking and old ways and to respond to your truth and grace as we live under your lordship. Amen. In 1865, Lewis Carroll wrote a story that is well-loved to this day, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. It's the story of a little girl who falls through a rabbit hole into an alternate reality. It's a fantastical, nonsensical place populated with a wonderful cast of characters. The child encounters this new reality where logic and meaning things that she knows from her real-world experience don't completely make sense. Even the rules of mathematics don't apply in this new place. In fact, for some of us, the rules of mathematics don't make sense in any place, but I have a son who calls himself a matheist. Um, Okay, back to Alice in Wonderland. People have loved that story for 150 years, and it's never been out of print. Is it an allegory? You know, is it about something else? People have debated this the whole time about what does it actually mean. And perhaps Lewis Carroll was suggesting in this story that there may be other ways of understanding our world, that life as we know it may not be life as it really is. And there are lots of other stories and films that that grab this idea of what really is reality. And you might think of The Matrix or Inception or other uh, popular things from more recent years. The alternate reality genre is something that we keep coming back to. I wonder why. Perhaps deep down, humans have a sense that there's more to this world than we can perceive. That there's a greater reality. That there's something there that we can't necessarily prove, but it is tantalising nonetheless. Maybe we're made for more than this world. There's certainly more going on than our senses can perceive and some essential part of us yearns for it. Mark Twain said a really interesting uh, quote here. He said, You can't trust your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. I'll say that one again. You can't trust your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. And in the book of Matthew... Jesus kindles this imagination. He helps us to see the world and our place in it in an entirely new way. He tells stories, parables, and provides images that help us to understand that beyond what we think we know about life, there is a whole other kingdom. So let's go back to first century Judea and let's pick up on a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has previously used the term the kingdom of heaven and they're trying to get their heads around it. Now, just out of interest, uh, the other gospel writers 
talk about the kingdom of God. Matthew exclusively speaks about the kingdom of heaven, and that seemed to resonate with his Jewish audience all the more. So the, the disciples are trying to understand what's this talk about the kingdom of heaven, and let's have a look at uh, chapter 18, verse 1 of Matthew. Clearly, the disciples just don't get it. And we can tell by the first question they ask. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Before we hear Jesus' answer, let's just think about what's implicit in that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, first of all, it's the idea that kingdoms and greatness go together. If you were a first century Jew, who would be your examples of greatness? I wonder what are the sort of templates that the disciples have in mind. I think the first one that you might go to would be Herod the Great. It's pretty obvious, right? If you're thinking of people who are great, you'd think of Herod the Great straight off the bat. Now, there are a few different Herods who ruled Judea at that time. The one known as Herod the Great was the one who ruled up until about the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, He was called Herod the Great because he was powerful, because he built lots of stuff and because he had a massive manly beard. He wasn't called Herod the Great because he was a great guy. In fact, if monarchs were named for their character rather than their power, he would have been Herod the Jerk. He was a tyrant. He taxed his people heavily He spent his own currency on projects named after himself. Uh, He was known for all sorts of brutal acts, including murdering a wife and two of his sons. And uh, and apparently it was Herod the Great who was responsible for the massacre of uh, the, the children when the Magi told him that the king of the Jews had been born. So a terrible person. But someone who would be stereotypically understood to be great at that time. Or your thoughts might have turned to the Roman Empire. Because even though Herod was a big shot in Judea, he was a vassal king. That is, he was under the rule of Rome. In 63 before Christ, another guy with the same last name, Pompey the Great, who was a Roman, uh, he conquered Jerusalem and then it came under Caesar. And the Caesars were the greatest in their kingdom. There'd been Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and at the time of uh, Jesus' ministry, Tiberius Caesar. And these men were the most powerful men in the world. Less into beards, but more into armies. They spent their wealth on building roads that could stretch across their kingdom uh, and building armies so they could project that Roman power into any corner of their empire and just dominate anywhere. So if you were thinking about the greatest in the, ki- in the kingdom in first century Judea, you would be thinking of men of wealth and power and influence, men who had respect or fear of everyone around them. And the disciples wanted to know who would be like that in the kingdom of heaven. Who would be the big shot? Who would be the top dog in the kingdom of heaven? Well, we're basing our studies on Matthew's gospel, but in Luke chapter 9, we also get a little bit of insight into this very conversation. Luke tells us the disciples were arguing over who would be the greatest. You see, they had this idea that the Jesus movement would be the greatest revolution ever. 
And they were kind of right about that, but they misunderstood what it was going to look like. And they thought that uh, this Jesus movement was going to result in a new world order and then they could be imagining whatever greatness looked like to them, bigger temples or bigger beards or whatever it might be. And they wanted to know who'd be at the top of that. See, recently, just back in chapter 17, Jesus had picked Peter, James and John and he'd taken them up onto the mountain for the transfiguration experience and perhaps they were considered to be the favourites. Maybe they were sort of on the top shelf for uh, the top jobs in uh, the kingdom of heaven. But also recently, Jesus has been starting to say some disturbing stuff. He's been talking about his own uh, upcoming death, which doesn't usually fit into plans for greatness. But it also means that there could be a pretty big job vacancy opening up sometime soon. So we're at a point in Jesus' uh, ministry with his disciples where there's a few things that are going on here. The disciples have a very worldly notion of what greatness means. The disciples have a sense that there's going to be a massive revolution and that all this kingdom talk is getting them pumped up about what's new. And thirdly, they want to be, they want to know who's going to be the greatest in this new world order. And then Jesus completely messes with their heads. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 2. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now for the disciples, this is going down the rabbit hole or glitching the matrix or something. It's just a completely different understanding of the reality that they thought they knew. The child is not an emperor, not impressive, can't even grow a beard. It's the complete opposite of what we expect. And that's how it goes with the kingdom of heaven. Not what we expect, but more wonderful than we could know. Now, what about us? I don't think anyone here grew up wanting to be Herod or Caesar, but we do have dreams that are shaped by our culture and our century, and they might be just as off-target as the disciples' dreams. We like them, probably like the ideas of status and wealth and power and importance. We all like to matter. We'd all like to be the richest or the most beautiful or the most entertaining or the most accomplished, wouldn't we? These are the things that would appeal to us. But Jesus says to the disciples of the first century and to us now, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom. What does it mean to become like a child? I think it really implies trust and dependence. Have you ever experienced a a child's spontaneous trust and dependence on you? Have you ever had that experience when you're about to cross a road with a child and they just reach up and grab your hand because they just want you to make them safe as they cross the road? Uh, Or ever had a, a kid just come and hug you because they need to feel better and they know you can provide that? 
Well, have you had a, a child just want to play with you because they just want to enjoy your presence and your company? These are the sorts of things that give us a little bit of insight into uh, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Childlike faith characterized by trust and dependence. If we think about uh, Genesis, and I think it's good to always trace our theology back to Genesis. In Genesis 3, when we read about the original sin and the fall, at its essence, it's about people rejecting their position as children of God. Because Adam and Eve decided to take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could decide for themselves what would be right or wrong. They wanted to equate themselves to God, elevate themselves to God-like status instead of being children of God. And what Jesus is talking about here is if we want to re-enter right relationship with God in the kingdom of heaven, we need to go back to a childlike relationship with our Father God. Now, let's be clear about this. We're talking about a childlike attitude, not a childish attitude. Okay? Let's just think about that. Having a childlike faith doesn't mean being naive or unsophisticated or petty. That stuff's childish. Paul emphasizes the importance of growing up in life and in faith. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So we have to become mature, but there's something that we shouldn't lose or something that we should go back to, and that is a childlike perspective. Have a look at this photo. This is a photo from the 1970s of a child meeting Andre the Giant. He's never seen anything like it. Uh, So I'm sure some people remember Andre the Giant. He was a pro wrestler from the 1970s and 80s, and you might remember him as the lovable Fezzik from uh, The Princess Bride. He was 220 220 centimetres tall and 220 kilograms. Seven foot four. And you look at that child's face in the photo, and he's just going, wow, you're amazing. I've never seen anything like you. It's just this sense of wonder. And that's just a boy meeting a big man. How should we encounter God? A bit of awe should be involved, right? A bit of perspective. And if we have that perspective then we're a little closer to the kingdom of heaven. Now, last week we had Ben Smith uh, being baptised. He's just turned 11. And today we've got Tim Harris being baptised, and he's a grown man. At whatever age, it's a beautiful thing when someone says, I trust you, God, I depend on you, I'm in awe of you. So we can grow and mature, but we should keep something childlike and wonderful about our perspective. And then we might be able to see more of the wonderful reality that is the kingdom of heaven. So if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, get your child on. All right, let's keep reading. From verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... 
It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. This is a serious passage. Now, if you've got a a Sunday school picture of Jesus as gentle, Jesus meek and mild, uh, this is going to rock your world here, isn't it? Jesus is talking about drowning, cutting off limbs, eternal fire, gouging eyes. It's powerful imagery. And it has shock value to convey a serious message. Yes, in this passage there is a sense of the value of children and our need to protect them from harm. But what he's actually talking about here uh, is that Jesus is likening children to those who believe in me. Those who are coming to know God, those who are young in their faith. And he is deadly serious about not causing them to stumble. It is a terrible thing for the actions of a Christian to destroy the faith of someone else. Um, Do you all know of the children's author Roald Dahl? He wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the BFG and Fantastic Mr. Fox and other things. He also wrote a story of his childhood called Boy. And in that story, he recounts his rather brutal school days at an English boarding school called Repton. He tells about the terrible canings the boys used to get from their cruel schoolmasters who seemed to take pleasure in inflicting pain. Well, Dahl's headmaster went on to become a bishop and then went on to become the Archbishop of Canterbury, whom Dahl saw at the coronation of the Queen. Roald Dahl wrote, Well, well, well. And this was the man who used to deliver the most vicious beatings to the boys under his care. Mm. So from his own experience of being caned and witnessing the caning of friends, Roald Dahl seriously questioned religion and even God himself. In his autobiography, Dahl wrote about that man, if this person, I kept telling myself, was one of God's chosen salesmen on earth, then there must be something very wrong about the whole business. Mm. What a terrible thing it is to ruin the faith of a young person by one's flaws of character. In Australia since 2016, there's been a significant decline in the Australian census figures Uh, relating to people identifying themselves as belonging to any faith or religion. Do you think there might be a correlation with the fact that our government has had to run a royal commission into institutional responses to, to child sexual abuse? Surely the failings of prominent people in faith communities has harmed the spread of the gospel in Australia. Woe upon them, says Jesus. May justice be done on heaven and earth. 
But it's easy, isn't it, to point the finger at others? And I always like that idea that if you're pointing the finger, there's three fingers pointing back at yourself. I wonder how each of us, by our words and our actions, affects those around us, especially those who have a fledgling faith, a childlike faith. What's your realm of influence? We all have one somewhere, don't we? Is it family? Is it a workplace somewhere in the community, a sporting club perhaps? Could your actions damage someone's understanding of Christ and his kingdom? What if you've got dodgy business practices? Has your lack of integrity caused someone to stumble? What if you tempt someone into sin? Has your lack of integrity caused someone to stumble? What if your attitude is persistently cynical and lacking in hope? Have you caused someone else to lose faith? What about unforgiveness or bad habit? or a dependency. These are the things that we might uh, be responsible for and could really cause someone else to stumble. If there's something in our lives that is causing others to falter in their faith, Jesus is very clear about it. Cut it out. Get help if you need to, but it's got to go because our failings are an obstacle to others meeting Jesus. The hypocrisy of Christians is an absolute disaster. So we need to confess our wrongs and start revealing what the kingdom is really meant to be. People should encounter Christ when they encounter us. People should be looking at us and seeing something different, something of this other way of life that is more wonderful than their experience of a broken, fallen world. They should be going down the rabbit hole or glitching the matrix when they encounter us because there's something so different about the way we live we should never cause them to stumble okay we'll move on to verse 10 and here uh, the tone changes a little bit i think we got a very severe warning from jesus in those previous verses but let's uh, read this and see something about the heart of christ as well See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not... That did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This story is all about showing just how much God yearns for people to come to him. He cares about the stray and the lost and the vulnerable. And he goes looking. Jesus left heaven to come to earth and live for us and die for us to bring back the lost. And if in that previous passage we saw something of the holy fire and the righteous anger of Jesus, here we see a beautiful heart of compassion. This is Jesus' great priority, that people would come home to where they're safe and where they're cared for. 
God wants us to come to his kingdom. We don't get there by being great. It's a childlike faith that will help us see the kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he revealed the goodness and rightness of your kingdom to us here on earth. And Lord, we come before you as your children and we look at you and we say, you're awesome. We put our trust in you and we depend on you and we ask that we might see more of your kingdom and that we might represent your kingdom well to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.